Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of That Anthro Podcast. Before we get started, I have a little message about the show. So I would just like to say thank you so much for all the love and support over this last year that I've been producing this podcast. Creating That Anthro Podcast has been every bit of the dream that I ever imagined it to be. And after launching my first episode, July 15th, with Amy Anderson in 2020, I've produced an additional 41 episodes, each with amazing guests who have taught me as much as I hope they've taught you. My sincerest thanks goes out to each and every guest who took the time to talk with me and to share their story and passions with all of you. However, through this year of developing and growing the podcast, not only have we been going through a global pandemic, but I've also been a full-time student as well as holding an on-campus job. And while it's still been my absolute pleasure to, you know, make the podcast, I found myself being more disorganized than the high standards that I hold myself to, Uh, like, you know, skipping weeks posting episodes or not having enough time to double check the audio. The fact is, this fall, I will be entering my senior year at UCSB And with that comes a lot of responsibilities, including starting the graduate school application process and visiting graduate schools. So in the interest of best preparing for the coming senior year, I'll be taking a break from regularly posting episodes this summer. This episode will be the last weekly installment of season one of That Anthro Podcast. But I promise this is not all sad news. I will be releasing a very special one-year anniversary episode on July 15th to mark the one year of that Anthro podcast that'll be a bit different in which I'll be the one being interviewed. So I hope it'll kind of be a time for me to share a bit more of myself with the listeners as well as offer an opportunity to reflect on one year of having that Anthro podcast and being a podcaster. (laughs) It still seems so weird to consider myself a podcaster, but I know I am. So when will I start posting weekly episodes again, and what will my time off look like? Well, June is going to be my vacation month. I am going to definitely enjoy some much-needed time off and relaxation, and even do a little bit of traveling to visit some friends. And then starting in July, it's back to full force, back to my job, and starting an internship with someone you guys are going to remember, past guest Mallory Melton as well as revitalizing and revamping the podcast. I am planning to create a website, which will have some fun surprises that I won't ruin. I'm also going to be creating a new segment of the show, a new short form episode that I haven't decided yet if it'll be like a weekly thing or a bi-weekly or a monthly thing, but I promise there is a new segment, a new episode of the show coming. So that's really excited. That's really exciting and definitely something to look forward to, especially for all of my osteology lovers. You've got something fun coming your way. Then, all summer, I will be recording new episodes with guests. I just won't be posting them, so I'll be able to perfect them, have everything ready to go, and then in September, I'm going to release what I'm going to call season two. And from September on, we'll do weekly episodes. And this way, since I will have had them kind of backlogged, I can definitely take all the time that it needs to be perfect. And also, people's schedules are constantly changing. And I really don't like my guests feeling any pressure, you know, to to reschedule. We all need to reschedule sometimes. And we all have to have, you know, lots of things going on and we all have to have flexible schedules. So I think this will be the best thing for everyone. And again, it will have me super prepped and ready to go for my senior year of college. So once again, I just want to say thank you guys for all your support. 
Please continue to follow along and I promise I'll be coming back better than ever. And in the meantime, get caught up on any episodes you've missed, recommend the podcast to a friend, or maybe even read one of the books I've recommended on the podcast. That's the other thing that's going to be coming in season two, some more book recommendations, because guess what I'm going to do all summer? Read. (laughs) But that's for my own personal enjoyment. Love reading. But then I'll tell you guys about what I've read, and hopefully maybe you'll get inspired to do the same. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to get into this week's episode you know we have an amazing guest. We always have an amazing guest. But it kind of seems fitting that the first episode with it was with a PhD candidate at UCSB. And oh my gosh, and I'm just realizing the last episode I was just going to say is with a PhD candidate at UCSB, but not only is it a PhD candidate, it's Sarah, who is Amy Anderson's close friend, lab partner, and sits across from her in the IAS lab. And that's how I met Sarah was when I was working with Amy. So dang, full circle moment. Anyway, super excited to introduce Sarah. And now a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. I'd like to introduce our guest this week, Sarah Alami. So welcome to That Anthro Podcast. I'd love to just give you a little opportunity to introduce yourself and what you're currently researching here at UC Santa Barbara in the Integrative Anthropological Sciences Laboratory. Uh, Hi, Gabby. Thanks so much for inviting me to be part of this podcast. Uh, It's a really cool initiative, and I'm super happy to, to be part of it. Uh, so I'm a um, human behavioral ecologist. Uh, so broadly speaking, I'm interested in understanding human variation, so variation in human behavior and, and health, and and sort of uh, looking at human variation as an adaptive response to ecological and social factors. And that's the, the broad picture. Uh, more specifically, uh, my research focuses on two main areas, uh, gender inequality and issues related to women's social status and position in society. And I also focus on issues of cultural diversity, uh, what you would call, uh, quote unquote, you know, integration. Uh, so I'm interested in understanding how culturally diverse societies come into existence, how they function, and how we can improve uh, social cohesion in, in multicultural societies. That's awesome. I actually didn't know about that last part of your work. I'm really excited to learn more about that. So a really fun connection that maybe some of our listeners who've like been here since the beginning have put together. So Sarah actually works in the same lab as um, our first ever guest on the podcast, Amy Anderson, which I just thought, wow, that's so cool. I'm ending the first season with this episode. And that's just such a fun full circle moment you know you sit right next to Amy in the lab and actually that's how I was first introduced to you so I just think it's super awesome and just a fun little coincidence but I wanted to take this opportunity to give you some time to kind of reflect on your time you know as a part of the integrative or the IAS lab I'll just abbreviate it um And, you know, what were some of your first memories when you joined the lab? What have you enjoyed about working in an environment like that? Obviously, it's been a little bit different during the pandemic, but you were part of that lab for a while before, you know, I think we got all virtual. So I'll I'll let you answer the question. Right. Yeah. So, so Amy, in addition to being, you know, really great colleague and and fantastic researcher, she's also a wonderful human being and one of my best friends. and uh, so memories, one of my first memories, because I started a little bit, I was an undergrad at UCSB for my last uh, two years. And uh, I remember when I first started going to journal club and sort of interacting directly with professors. Um, and I just remember being like able to talk to them 
with people that I admired immensely and who I thought were absolutely brilliant. I had read their work, but not necessarily got, gotten to know them that closely. And I remember thinking, wow, they're just so, well, in addition to being really knowledgeable, they're just so nice and cool. And I can't believe I'm just talking to me. <laughs> and they're really nice and humble. Um, I also remember when we started uh, my cohort, so uh, Amy Anderson, uh, Carmen Hove, and Elizabeth Aggie, we all had, you know, proto-IDs of what it is that we wanted to do and what the direction we wanted to, to go. And, um, you know, five years later, um, here we are, and I'm quite, proud of my little cohort because they all did great and uh, they basically um, did exactly what what they wanted to do <laughs> and found a way to, to do it uh, uh, sometimes against all odds and um, and yeah I feel extremely extremely privileged and, uh, and lucky to have uh, gone through grad school with with an amazing cohort I think uh, the experience would have been different uh, had I been you know alone and yeah. And in general, the IS department is a really nice and friendly, friendly department. Uh, um, I got really lucky, uh, had a really fantastic advisor. Uh, I cannot recommend him enough, uh, Dr. Michael Gervin. Just honestly, just very, very good memories. Uh, yeah. When I'm done, it's going to be really bittersweet too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it really is my second, my second home. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that everyone's working on the, you know, well, actually, I don't know if everyone, because I don't know about the work of Carmen or Elizabeth, but, you know, you're all part of the Chumani Life and Health History Project, which is this really unifying, you know, feature of your work. And you're all working on different facets of that data. And it's such an interesting project. I'm glad I got to work on it with it for just a tiny little bit of time, but it's definitely a really cool uh, long, long-term project. No, absolutely. So not all of us. So definitely, uh, Carmen, Amy, and I have worked with the Chimani project and continue to to do so. Um, um, yeah, and that's also uh, it's long-standing. Uh, so I don't know if the listeners know about it, but it's a long, uh, long-term um, biomedical and anthropological project that's based out of um, Bolivia and sort of co-directed by uh, my advisor, Michael Gervin and um, Hilly Kaplan, who's at the University of Chapman right now. And uh, it's longitudinal studies. So it means that they've been collecting data de there and providing free medical care to shamanic communities for uh, almost 20 years now. And so they work with the shamane who are this um, small scale forager horticulturalist population uh, who live in the, the Bolivian Amazon. And since 2015, they've also been working with Mosetan communities, a related population, uh, but a little bit um, on, on different region, the Alto Beni, uh, who's a little more market integrated. Uh, and yeah, it's been fantastic. I mean, I will always remember I went to the field when I was an undergrad. Um, my last year of undergrad, I talked Dr. Gervin and Jacques sending me to do some research with the Chimane and and it was an amazing experience. I mean, I knew that that's what I wanted to do right then. And uh, and that even if it didn't work out, you know, that just the human experience and being there, I remember living in, on, on one of these really small plains and um, traveling over the, the Manique River, which is a, a subsidiary of the, the, the Amazon River and just looking at the view and thinking about my summer there and being like wow it was totally worth it it's yeah. amazing I can't believe that's amazing you brought up that you know you did your bachelor's at UCSB but something that people may have not know is that you actually were an international student first so you did your BA and then your MA at UCSB and now you're working on your PhD like we were talking about so I'm really curious to kind of hear about your educational journey and what drew you to school here and kind of just how you ended up on the path that you are now. I'm sure that, you know, there was a lot of consideration that went in, especially since you did come, you know, from uh, out of the country. Right. So I was born and raised in Morocco, a uh, country in Northwest Africa. Uh, my parents are there all my family's there. And you're absolutely right. I joined the lab in 2014 and I was an undergrad then. Uh, so how I got there is kind of like a, a long story, but um, grew up in Morocco. And after high school, I actually studied business in France oh. for, yeah, for a while before I realized that a career in, you know, the corporate world wasn't really my thing. Uh, 
but you know, in my family, uh, my parents' generation are the first to have received a formal education. They're, they're very driven, hardworking, real, you know, self-made people who worked really hard and um, uh, to pursue their studies and get to where they are in life. Um, so the environment I grew up in was not, uh, has had, if you want, more pragmatic views about education. So I always thought, you know, I would end up becoming an engineer or maybe, you know, like I would work in a bank or, or something like that. But anthropology, that wasn't something that I knew existed. Um, I didn't know what it was or that it was something you could do, let alone yeah. make a, a career out of. But I have to say that some of the research questions on, and topics that I'm interested in and that I'm working on right now, uh, I've always been uh, interested in from, from a very young age. So um, I remember when I was in, in junior high, um, we had this amazing history and humanities teacher. His name was uh, Mr. Touron, <laughs> he was French. Um, and he made us read some classic philosophers like uh, Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, and really made us think about human nature and the origins of inequality. So have people always been in war of all against all because they're selfish and, and inherently bad or is human nature good and people are corrupted by bad social systems and circumstances. And, uh, and I remember him telling us, you know, the only way really you can get an answer to that question is to either go back in time when things were much simpler, or if you're really lucky, find a way to study the few remaining small scale societies that aren't as hierarchical or institutionalized as, as ours. And, you know, here I am, uh, however many years later, yeah. Uh, in my undergrad year, sitting in a seminar on the evolution of human cooperation and sociality with Dr. Gervin and thinking, wow, oh my God, like I can actually do that and I can yeah. make a thing out of that. But these topics, I think, were uh, like spoke to me uh, and continue to do so because uh, because of Morocco. And so I grew up in Casablanca, which is a, a, a big, one of these really big, noisy, overwhelming uh, uh, cities that are re developing rapidly and uh, with lots of wealth and social inequalities. So, um, so I remember uh, my, uh, I was very young, I can't remember how old I was, uh, not, not in high school yet, younger than that. Um, I was at a sleepover uh, at a friend's house one night, and and that night uh, my parents had they, they had gone out with my little sister to to eat at a their you know their regular restaurant, and uh, and that night a group of um, young men from the shanty towns turned sort of radical fundamentalists blew up the restaurant right next door to the one where my parents were sitting, and. Um, and that was really traumatizing. Um, like I could have lost my entire family that night. Uh, it was just out of luck that they came out of it alive. And, but even though, you know, thinking back on it, even though what this young man did was of course, you know, horrible and, and forgivable, um, I couldn't help but uh, feel kind of really sorry for them because they were really young. They weren't that much older than me at the time. And had they been a little more lucky in life, provided with a little more opportunities or been more loved, maybe uh, they would have never done, uh, never been indoctrinated uh, to the point of doing something so horrible and becoming sort of increasingly aware of these social inequalities uh, that were right there in front of you. But when you grow up in it, you don't necessarily, it's like, it only becomes obvious when sort of like shocking happens. And yeah, that experience and a few others really sort of made me aware of the harm social injustices yeah. can do and uh, and that's what really sparked my interests in behavior um, the origin of human sociality and social hierarchies and wealth inequality and gender inequality and how we can improve tolerance and, and so on um, yeah uh, but you know from there how I ended up at UCSB um, uh, during that seminar the the evolution of cooperation seminar I turned in a final project uh, that Dr. Gervin really liked um, and you know I didn't know much about grad school or how to apply or um, but yeah Dr. Gervin just gave me a chance and he sort of took me under his wing and I'm incredibly <laughs> grateful for that. And like you were saying with those boys who blew up 
the restaurant, you know, what if they had been introduced to those ideas and those questions of humanity? Like you said, what if they had had that education? What if they had had the chance to talk about or learn a broader perspective than they may have just been forced on them or were was a result of their circumstances? It's just education and widening our perspectives is such a more powerful idea than we can even begin to touch on. It really, it's just yeah, I don't have any words other than it's just bigger than we can even begin to understand. No, absolutely. I think uh, I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, um, yeah, I think not only these young men didn't have access to good schooling, uh, perhaps very little schooling to begin with, but then the quality of the schooling as well. Uh, but also, you know, when you grow up, in a place where uh, you live in really, really crappy situations. Uh, and it's predictable where you live isn't legal kind of, and you can get kicked out. And at the same time, there are people next to you who live on another planet with very fancy cars and houses and whatnot. It creates a lot of frustration. And, mm-hmm. and if you don't have outlets to let that frustration out, like if you don't have access to, I don't know, like sports or art, mm-hmm education or something that something that's sort of bigger than all of that you know something that allows you to to escape but also to make sense of the world and try to get out people are indoctrinated when these guys what happened is that they this wasn't their idea to blow up that restaurant or a few other places actually in town uh, that year it was definitely not coming from them it was coming from an international terrorist organization Mm -hmm. Uh, they spent a lot of time uh indoctrinating these guys so giving them structure giving them exactly what they lacked giving them purpose giving them an identity giving them that and um and you know when you're can all think about you know remember what we were like when when you're 18 you're still a Mm -hmm. baby your head you may look like a grown-up but you really are not you're not and so it's easy to to be manipulated yes I think we should also take this time to switch to a more positive note and I'd love to hear what you love about Morocco what are the things that you maybe have special family connections with that you miss I know you were saying you hope hope to get to visit family soon um yeah what do you what do you love about Morocco It's a really beautiful country and really diverse and um, 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 little, it's, you know, it's in the northwest of Africa, you have like Spain and Europe to the north, and then, you know, you have uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and then you have sort of the Middle East to to the east a little further, Um, and it's been a um, a crossroad for many people for for a long time and uh, so my favorite thing about it is it really is the people I think it's a it's a place where the people are really warm and welcoming and uh, and very generous and uh, solidary with each other so um so, for example, you know, I've been doing a little bit of field work in southeast Morocco uh, recently, and it's an area where there's a lot of there's parts of that area that are very touristic. And when the, the pandemic hit, uh, a lot of tourists got stuck in in mm. that that little that little region. And people are, are poor there. I mean, they're not have not not all of them are poor, but a lot of people don't have are not very uh, uh, um, well off financially, and you know, but they really took care of those people who got stuck. So they they welcomed them in their houses. Uh, they fed them every day. Uh, they built little houses for them when they still, when they you know stayed there for a really long time. So people are really hospitable, and there's a sense that uh, so it's a place where sometimes it's hard to make a living. But you will not you won't see as many homeless people, for example, just because of this people's solidarity and uh, people taking care of each other in a way. Um, uh, we have a saying, I don't know if we can translate here, but uh, you live out of the, the goodwill of others, sort of the goodwill mm. of parents, the goodwill of your family. Uh, that's what, that's how you can make, make a living basically. 
and you know goes to show how social relations are important and that's definitely something that's um, really important there and valued and I like that a lot people spend a lot of time um, taking care of those precious relations and that's something I I like very much about where I'm from. I like that too. I think that's a great, great thing. And I hope to hope to visit Morocco. I was actually in Malaga, Spain, and we talked about it. We were like, okay, should we do a trip and go to the markets? And I can't remember why we ultimately decided not to. Oh, because we went to see the um Alhambra. The... Yes, the Alhambra. I was like, why is on the tip of my tongue? I was gonna say Altamira, the cave that has the <laughs> that has prehistoric art, which also I would love to see. But yeah, we ended up going to the Alhambra instead. But yeah, definitely def- Morocco is on the list for sure. Something about you that is, you know, continues this spirit of, you know, the goodwill of others is you've been a very active and helpful grad student to others around campus. And, you know, recently you actually talked in my graduate prep class and helped share this, you know, the same things we're talking about now, your your journey to anthropology and offering any advice that you can, you know, along the way of from what you've learned. So I was curious if you have any advice or experiences that, you know, you could offer to undergraduate students looking to pursue a similar degree that may listen to the podcast. Right. So, I mean, honestly, outside of research, um, (laughs) I have no idea what advice to give students. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've never really been strategic about my career. Um, I generally love what I do, uh, but to be completely honest, you know, I oscillate between, you know, what the hell am I doing? And how am I going to make a living with this? And I'm having so much fun. This is awesome. Uh, I'm having a great time. I don't even care about my life prospects or whatnot. Uh, so that's not helpful, is it? But um, I feel like that is just as important of advice because I think lots of times, and I was realizing this as I'm starting the process of looking into grad schools. I was freaking myself out that I didn't know exactly what I want my, you know, PhD to be on. And people have had to sit me down and go, that's okay. That's what it's supposed to be. Yeah. You want to have an idea. You want to have a field. You want to have some concept of things you like, but it's okay. We, I think we need to shatter that, that perfect glass bubble around grad school that everything, you know, you have to start on the path that you start on and you, you can't change anything like that. That's really not the reality. And I think people it's, it's good. No, not everyone knows what the heck they're doing. That's all right. <laughs> well, absolutely. Um, I mean, honestly, when it comes to a PhD, um, things will, your ideas will change. They will mature, they'll develop. Sometimes they'll entirely pivot in a different direction, but what you really need to to, you just need to be really self-driven and kind of open to criticism um, yeah. because you're going to learn from very smart and competent people who don't have the time to teach you everything. Uh, and uh, so you have going to have to do some catching up on your own. Uh, you're also going to have to learn if you're doing a PhD in anthropology. And for, for example, if you want to join IIS, it's a highly interdisciplinary department with primatologists, human biologists, mm-hmm. uh, behavioral ecologists, evolutionary psychologists. And so you need to pick up on lots of different topics and, and skills and you pick them up along the way. And you have to be okay with realizing that your first research IDs maybe and drafts are really going to be kind of crappy, not all that great, and as a result, criticized and yeah, you just have to persevere and sort of enjoy the process of yeah. learning and getting better at, at doing science because you do get a lot better at it. Uh, and um, it's it's a fun and enjoyable thing to do. And you you start to learn how to learn and then you become really good at learning. And that's mm-hmm. very, very satisfying in itself. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can communicate it to others. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For your PhD, what questions are you investigating? And we talked about that, you know, some of your data is from the Trumani Life and Health History Project, but the other, you know, part of your data is from, you said, southeastern Morocco? So I haven't quite yet started collecting data there and sort of, oh, okay. um, so I went, uh, I visited the southeast of Morocco, which isn't a region that I was um, familiar with. Um, that's not where I'm from or uh don't even speak the language <laughs> they speak there or anything like that but uh it's a region that i started going back to frequently during my phd because uh because of sort of future ideas for potential research mm. projects uh so it's a region that has uh 
uh, it's very diverse culturally. Um, so I work in, or I mean, I want to work really, although I did do a lot of ethnography there. Um, um, it's located in the southern slope of the High Atlas Mountain. So it's sandwiched mm -hmm. between the Atlas Mountains, the Sahara Mountains, and in the desert, the, the Ghalil Desert. And it's a small oasis. And it being an oasis, it's at the crossroad of, and it has been at a crossroad of um, Sub-Saharan Africa and Northern Africa for many centuries. And, a and as a result, uh, a lot of different groups um, lived there and sort of fought against each other for access to water and whatnot. And and today, uh, people live in different ways. So in the upper side of the oasis, people live off tourism mainly and some agriculture. And um, in the lower part of the valley, it's a region that really is, um, like the rest of Morocco, uh, a place of, of uh, out-migration. So a lot of people have left uh, in, after Morocco was colonized by, by France and Spain. And uh, during the French protectorate, uh, a lot of um, uh, companies from France and other places in Europe, like the Netherlands, and started recruiting uh, men, especially to go work in mines or factories or as seasonal agricultural worker. Uh, so as a result, uh, the transitioned from an oasis economy, so people who grow food for subsistence or people who who are transhumant nomads, so who who, who move from one side to the other uh, uh, to to take their their um, their goats and sheep um, to graze um, to an area of migration and where people like live mostly off remittances, so money that's sent back from wherever your your relatives are. And I'm really interested in that because I'm interested in relationship between groups and why we maintain them and this sort of extra community relationship and in a context like that. So how do people keep ties with people who live abroad or uh, uh, to make a living? What kind of relationship there? Uh, how do they choose partners? How do they, etc. cetera. Um, so that's why I want to work there. Uh, on top of that, it's a region that's really interesting for looking at gender inequality. Mm -hmm. So. It's small, but gender norms are very different between the different groups who live there. So uh, again, in the upper part of the valley, gender norms are sort of relaxed, uh, not as egalitarian as, I don't know, like Norway right now, but women can divorce, women work mostly in tourism. Uh, a lot of people have guest houses where they welcome tourists. Um, in the lower side of the valley, people are, uh, a little more not only there's like more sex segregation of space you can divorce remarriage after being widowed is a no-no and on top of that people are wary of strangers which isn't the case in the upper valley so i'm really interested in mm. understanding where do these differences come from is it just because of the way people make a living right now or is it because of sort of historical differences between groups and uh, or, or old subsistence patterns and whatnot and so that's the idea it's a project yeah. a proto project that's what I want to do after my PhD I really want to work hard to to well I want to continue working in Bolivia of course but I would like to develop this this project a little more and spend more time um, collecting data in Morocco. No that sounds super fascinating and what I wanted to talk about was I was looking at your website and I think one of the really interesting things that, you know, you're studying is women's women's status and leadership. And I'm curious because I actually have no idea kind of what the social dynamics are in the Chumani population, because as you know, the work that I did with Amy was primarily like osteologically related. So um, my first uh, time in the field in 2014, with I was uh, I I did a bunch of things, but among the things I did was help Christopher van Ruden, who's a professor at uh, the School of Leadership Studies at the University of Richmond and a previous student of, of Mike, Mike Gervin, my advisor, uh, was to help him collect data on on women's social status uh, among. So he looked at men a lot, but he had never done anything with women. And uh, and I also had, you know, was also interested. And uh, and what we did is that we, uh, well, the, the original idea was to look at sex differences in 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 sort of leadership and status and influence between men and women. So uh, 
basically took photos of everyone in, in a village um, and asked people to rank each other on a series of questions. So who do you think has uh, uh, the greatest influence in community meetings? So basically who gets there, who, who has, uh, um, whose voice carries the most weight in community meetings? That's how, that, that was the exact question if I were to translate it into English. And uh, there were other questions like who's good at managing uh, projects, uh, community projects, who uh, uh, begets more, the most respect in the community. And so people sort of ranked each other. We got a ranking uh, on this status measure. And uh, what we did with Chris was compare men and women. And that's a different paper from, from my own paper. So that's a, uh, uh, so we, we found that even though men in general sort of were seen as higher status, uh, there was a lot of overlap between men and women and that the differences we saw weren't necessarily a result of just gender per se, but mostly they, they were the result of sort of differences in uh, body strength, differences in education between men and women and differences in uh, the number of cooperation partner you, you have. And that's what one of the things that really mattered. And uh, so I got really interested. That's what where my interest in women's status started uh, um, developing. And so in the literature in general, uh, the liter literature on the gender gap and things like that, you have two ways of looking at the question. Of course, there's a lot of constraints, right? There's a lot of things women aren't able to do because of societal circumstances when you have children you don't have time to pursue a career uh, if you're the main caretaker for your mm -hmm. children or you're in a system that's not designed to be welcoming to women uh, a lot of things like that but there's another side of the story which is well are there differences in the motiv motivations for pursuing status do men and women pursue status for different reasons and maybe that's why we see differences in competition and things like that uh, with the idea that men in general tend to be more competitive, at least overtly competitive than women. And that's the question I wanted to, to explore. So are there differences? Um, there's a lot of rich, vast literature on why men seek status. Um, uh, because of that idea, again, that the intuitive sort of evidence that men compete more than women, but also because of theoretical underpinnings uh, drawn mainly from the animal behavior and the evolutionary evolutionary science literature on social hierarchies. Uh, so the idea that men are more competitive has been associated with them being able to leverage their social position for sexual access to, to mates, which results in producing more children and propagating more genes in natural fertility settings, at least. So if you think about men like Genghis Khan, for example, who were really powerful men, uh, conquered vast areas of land and were able to monopolize access to multiple mates and maybe have big harems. Um, I think, oh, I don't know how many children Genghis Khan left, but I think quite a lot in the thousands, yeah. right? Uh, but, you know, women's reproduction is constrained. Um, even if all you do is reproduce, you still have to be pregnant for nine months. You still have to, in natural sort of traditional populations you have to breastfeed um, most of the time so that's like almost an entire year and then you have to get pregnant again and anyway, it's, it's it's you're more constrained than than men and yeah. I don't know the, the max if you if you're not twinning right you can have maybe if you start real early maybe you'll end up with I don't know 22 kids at most but you'll never be in the thousands right mm -hmm. so the idea that maybe fertility isn't so access to mates maybe isn't what what drives women necessarily or I, not maybe it is but fertility per se is not what drives access to to mates for women but so what does we looked at literature from different disciplines that looks at at the societal level you know when women are better represented in politics and whatnot things tend, tend to get better for children mm -hmm. There's also some evidence that women tend to be more competitive when um, we need about their kids, for example. And we wanted to look at whether indeed uh, our measure of status associated with uh, uh, child survival, and uh, we didn't necessarily have data on survival per se, but we had data on health, on child health outcomes among the Chimani longitudinal data over many, many years. 
and uh, so we looked at uh, women's status in relationship to that. So, and we did find indeed that women who who yielded greater political influence in their communities, so women whose voice was carried the most weight during community meetings, uh, tended to have healthier children. Uh, mm. We looked at metrics. We also looked at clinical diagnosis uh, from uh, from the Chimane Project's uh, doctors. And the idea is that, well, maybe their the ability to sway community decision uh, um, perhaps allows them to access resources, improve resource access, basically for their families. Uh, or maybe you know, uh, these women who are vocal in community meetings are also vocal at home, and uh, and they have more bargaining power as well. Things like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was that was the study. Uh, I had a lot of fun uh, doing that and. Uh, it's a very cool literature. I think it's uh, in anthropology, at least, or other sister disciplines. Uh, it's women's cooperation, competition, women's social networks, which is also something I look at. Um, are like uh, how do you say uh, blooming? Yeah, flourishing, yeah. blooming areas of research, and that's really exciting because for a long time uh, nobody cared about it. Uh, so it's nice uh, that. Yeah. It's happening right now. My dissertation is uh, it's a bit different, uh, uh, but related nonetheless. I I look at um, so basically the goal of my dissertation is to understand what drives people to to marry across cultural boundaries, to form kinship relationships across cultural boundaries, and uh, so it's I'm interested in that because uh, intermarriage or it's often used you know as an indicator of minority integration and social cohesion, things like that. And from an anthropological perspective, it's also really interesting. It's an interesting question because um, of two things, basically. Well, first one is that compared to other species, we humans are really unique at forming and maintaining peaceful relationships between groups um, and often cooperative relationships between groups. Uh, I mean, that doesn't happen uh, in other species. and uh, the other thing is that human structure is really unique. Human social structure is very different from that of, um, for example, other primates. So, um, uh, so these things may not seem related, but I'll try to make them. I'll try to to explain as best as I can where I see the connections. So, uh, uh, in other primates, so dispersals basically. Um, the movement of individuals from the place where they were born to uh, uh, to their breeding group is often sex biased. And uh, so, for example, in macaques and other cercopithecine monkeys, uh, it's uh, um, it's uh, often males who disperse, and in chimps, it, it's females who disperse. But more importantly, like when they disperse, they don't really maintain relationships with their natal group. Like once you're gone, you belong to a different group, and that's it. Like you're not. Mm-hmm back to your natal group and just yeah. hang out with your mom or whatnot uh humans are very different right uh, so the parallel if you want to dispersal is post-marital residence or uh, uh or um group post-marital group affiliation uh and you know it's sometimes men sometimes women who move out but irrespective of that what's really unique about humans is that you keep those relationships with your with your parents once you're you don't just forget who they are you keep loving them you go back and visit them mm-hmm. you keep ties with both groups you also develop new ties with your in-laws we have fictive kinship right like we have terms to call a mother-in-law a sister-in-law they're also our family even though we're not related by blood and there's this really long idea in long-standing idea in anthropology that dates back to Claude Lévi-Strauss in the 1940s and even other people before that, where that's this pattern, reciprocal exogamy, so exchanging marriage partners between groups, is what, uh, um, uh, so in a systematic way, um, is how sort of groups come together. Um, and more recently, you know, researchers like uh, primatologists like Bernard Chappé or, uh, or other behavioral ecologists like Rob Walker, um, have argued that this practice of exchanging, you know, marriage partners uh, with alliances uh, among in-laws and whatnot is what led 
early hominins to develop more complex uh, social structures and you know you're able to belong to different groups at the same time and group uh, uh, um, belongingness and that's not a word uh, is very fluid and flexible um, so all this to say that intermarriage played an important role in our evolutionary history um, so I look at the drivers of intermarriage in two uh, communities that are located in the Alto Beni region of Bolivia and it's a place that's sandwiched between the Amazon and um, the Andes oh. and so it's uh, it's native to the Mosetan, who are a group that's related to the Chimane, a group of um, forager, uh, traditionally, you know, back in the days, forager farmers turned forager horticulturalists, and now they engage in commercial agriculture, etc. But it's also a region that uh, has experienced a, a really important influx of migrants uh, from the Andes, especially. Uh, because when after a national revolution and some, you know, agrarian reform and whatnot, people yeah. started coming from, from different regions, from the overpopulated Altiplano. And as a result, you have these communities that are heterogeneous, that are very culturally diverse. And I'm really interested in looking at whether there are people intermarry just because of, you know, they run out of options or just because it's convenient, they marry whoever's around or if there's more to it. So whether they intermarry in order to improve access to resources. So for instance, the, 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 the group that's native to the region, the Moseten have preferential access to land because uh, their indigenous land is protected. And so they have more land basically, whereas these other groups who, who, who come in tend to be a little more market integrated. They know how to do business better. And so they also have something to offer. So that's one possibility. And that's something that I'm finding actually in my data. Another possibility is uh, what we call risk buffering. So yeah, resource access was one hypothesis. Another thing was, yeah, the idea that intermarriage maybe smooths the risk of, of exogenous shocks to food production. So uh, uh, basically um, say something happens where you live or something's happened to your group, uh, your, your, so for example, where, uh, where I, where I work in Bolivia, uh, there has there's been, in addition to COVID, there has been this really bad papaya infection, papaya being the main cash crop that people grow. And people who relied heavily on papaya are really in a bad situation. People who didn't have other ways to make a living uh, really hit hard economically. Uh, but you know, if you have, uh, if you're married to a family where, you know, they get their living, people grow, for example, cacao or who, mm -hmm have a taxi or who do some wage labor, maybe you're more buffered um, and you're better able to deal with what we call, you know, exogenous shocks to production. So things from the outside that affect uh, 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 your, your economy, basically. And let alone you have access to support network and social network that don't rely on the same resources. So maybe that's one reason why people may, may intermarry. Um, yeah, and I'm also looking at attitudes towards diversity and multiculturalism. So, so for example, I'm interested in how people switch from identifying with their, you know, small little group, like saying, for example, I'm me, Sarah, I'm from Beausejour, this neighborhood in Casablanca, to saying I'm Moroccan, to saying I'm a citizen of the world kind of thing. So same thing, I'm looking at that there. Uh, how do you go from saying you're, you're, yeah, your Quechua, Aymara, or Musetan, or Chimane to identifying as Bolivian and how that mm -hmm. process happens. Um, so I'm really interested in that uh, because I mean, supposedly it helps, right? It blurs uh, group boundaries and it helps you feel like you're part of the same common project and whatnot. So the process of nation building. Um, so these are all things I, I look at in my dissertation. Yeah. Sort of similar question that I would like to continue exploring in in Morocco and uh, yeah, and behavioral ecology is really great for. So I'm actually stealing from another podcast. That's an amazing podcast that everyone should check out, especially if you love the show Queer Eye with Jonathan, Jonathan Van Ness. He has his own podcast called Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness. And as I look for ways to just, you know, improve my own podcast, something he asks his guests at the end is, We've reached the end of the episode. Do you have anything else that you would like the listeners to know? Any questions you have for me or anything else that you would like to share before we end off? 
So I'm thinking about the audience of the podcast. So if I'm speaking to, um, you know, if, if a lot of, for example, undergraduates in anthropology are listening to this, um, one thing I want to encourage them to do is, uh, um, it's, yeah, as you said, you know, to take a behavioral ecology class, it's, it's really, um, it's an awesome discipline. It takes the really holistic perspective on behavior and both biological and social um, phenomena. It provides explanations, like very satisfying explanations to things that genuinely blow my mind, like why do we have music or how did religion evolve or, and it's able to do that in a, in a sort of deep and holistic way, not just, you know, just evolves because of blah, 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 but more looks allows you to look at the broader picture mm-hmm. um, and to see how phenomena like social phenomena arise because of different pressures both uh yeah logical social etc and so i i highly um um i can exp- i don't know if that makes sense at all no that definitely makes sense give more like an example yeah, no you did a great pitch of your field <laughs> so let me give you an example i think maybe that will uh, help listeners because it's not a very well-known discipline I mean it's not mm-hmm. even a, for example I'm not in a behavioral ecology department per se it's just a, yeah sort of a way of doing things so uh, uh, so if you think about any social phenomenon like take for example you know religion for instance right it's something that's universally seen everywhere but it looks different in different parts of the world uh, but how come we even have something like that uh, so if you take a behavioral ecology perspective, um, you're going to learn, for example, about life, you're going to learn about different things, and then it's going to be like a puzzle that you put together at the end. So you're going to learn about life history theory and why humans and like other species, uh, um, uh, rely, uh, uh, on very difficult to acquire and unpredictable, um, sources of food and how we have this long prolonged life. Uh, after reproduction and what that does to our mind, our ability to project in the future and believe in something like the afterlife, right? You'll also learn about, right, how we get our food and how we rely on difficult to acquire unpredictable sources of food and how that, what that does to the importance of social bonds and relationships and our need for monitoring other people's behavior and making sure they're not defecting and they're Mm -hmm. good operators and how would we do that in societies that are too large uh, to to monitor and are anonymous. Um, You'll also learn about, you know, like food sharing and different models of food sharing and things like costly signaling, for example, and um, for example, how showing off albeit honestly, you know, qualities like generosity and whatnot can be the same as showing devotion and how that does, uh, how that helps your reputation and your ability to have a cooperation partner. It's just the ideas you take, instead of, you know, just taking something and being like, this is adaptive because of that, you take a more holistic view on the question and you're able to make sense of it um, by gathering different pieces of the puzzles from different things you learn. And I think that's very cool. I agree. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It it means a lot and it was great to catch up with you. Thank you so much, Gabby. Uh, I had a lot of fun.